and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, The Sunny Ways Edition. My name is Brent Whitmire, I'm an editorial and features writer, and I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, October 23rd. Nothing much happened this week in politics. <laughs> Ho-hum. A sweeping liberal majority after a stunning campaign turnaround. The first time Calgary's voted in a liberal MP in 47 years. Polls suggest that Alberta voters were far from sunshine and rainbows after the whole thing. We'll talk about that, plus Premier and Rachel Notley's attempt to feng shui her already minimalist cabinet. As always on the press gallery, I promise we'll keep the arrangement simple, tasteful, and always on the sunny side. Here in the studio, before they've managed to listen to the entirety of Justin Trudeau's victory speech, we have city columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Brent. Provincial affairs reporter Marian Ibrahim. Hello. And web producer and political gadfly Stuart X. Thompson. Hey. <laughs> Mes amis, you look fantastic. Merci beaucoup. It was a marathon election campaign, as I hinted, and it was a marathon victory speech. You've all had a few days to digest, to read the postmortems and vivisections. Uh, what stood out to you about Monday, Miriam? First of all, just how quickly the, the results were coming in, right? This was the first time that we were able to actually see the results come in before voting had even finished mm-hmm. in on the other side of the country. And that was really fascinating. And of course, because the Liberals swept Atlantic Canada, it was all the more compelling. And so people were really glued because to see that sort of red tide, as it were, sweep in right away, even while people in BC were still voting, was really fascinating to me. Fast forward, you know, several hours later, that victory speech, not only was it super long it 24 almost, minutes good god <laughs> it also sort of felt like they weren't expecting to win a majority because it, it didn't it didn't feel like a majority government speech you know it was sort of like a a very mild long you know platitude and it, it just didn't feel like something strong like something that they were expecting and therefore we're going to s- deliver a really strong message it's like a and, filibuster yeah and I, and yeah exactly it was sort of just something that continued to go on and on and, and when it was done I, I thought okay I know he won the election but what what did he just say <laughs> sunny ways my friend <laughs> sunny ways he'll always be there for Hadrian <laughs> Stuart oh. what do you think oh uh, well I think that the one thing you can't help but take away from it is that it was a very comprehensive win for the liberals um, you, you look at Alberta and you think well they didn't get much here but four seats in two in, in, two two in Calgary. Calgary, that is really something. And mm-hmm. uh, when you look at the other side of the coin, it's the comprehensive defeats of the Conservative Party and the NDP. The Conservatives, they're still around, but they're back at where they were in 2004. Uh, and not only that, in 2004, they had a leader that was going to take them mm-hmm. you know, further, uh, and now they don't really have that. And when you look at the NDP, I think it's kind of tough for them because someone had to go down. I think this was a battle to see who would replace the Conservatives, and whoever didn't win that battle was going to be decimated because mm-hmm. I think the anti-Harper vote had coalesced so strongly that they were just choosing someone. So uh, when it became the Liberals, the NDP suffered for that. Yeah, and I think really the NDP suffered as much as the Conservatives did. I mean, they went from official opposition with a legitimate chance to form government to back to being the third party. I mean, it was Miriam who pointed out to me on election night that Edmonton elected more New Democrats than Toronto did. Wow. Which elected zero. (laughs) I mean, 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 that's extraordinary for the NDP to be wiped out in downtown Toronto, for Olivia Chow, Jack Layton's widow, to lose her, you know, to lose to Adam Vaughn of the Liberals. That's extraordinary to me, and I think it really speaks. I mean, I'd been talking all through the campaign about how the Conservatives had run a terrible campaign and were defeating themselves, and I think that's still largely true, but I don't think you can take away from the fact that Justin Trudeau somehow 
over the course of that very long campaign, found his feet, found his voice, and and convinced Canadians that he was the one alternative. Hmm. And on the NDP question, too, I'm from Halifax, so I, I know Peter Stoffer and Megan Lens- Leslie, and even on the Conservatives, Gail Shea from PEI. Those are MPs that were universally respected and I think universally seen as great MPs. Megan Leslie, she lost in Halifax to a mostly anonymous liberal, and you can just sort of see how that sweep was happening. People just didn't want to... They wanted to make a bet on one party. It's the same thing that happened here when Laurie Blakeman, who was a hugely popular mm-hmm. yeah. liberal MLA, went down to the New Democrats. Not because people didn't like Laurie Blakeman, because, you know, what happened here when the Liberal Party collapsed is that is that all of the not-Prentice support coalesced around Notley, and it was extraordinary to see that same kind of pattern played out on the national stage. Mm-hmm. So the idea of turning points is kind of ridiculous in a way, because it's sort of like putting a narrative on a hockey game. But when you look back at this election, what was this Liberal turn? You know, it's funny, because we talked all the way along cynically about how very few people were going to watch these debates. But I really do think that for Trudeau, the turning point was the monk foreign policy debate. And can you think of anything more wonkish? I mean, there was this <laughs> there was this moment where Mulcair was going after him in this really nasty way about his father and his father's legacy. And Trudeau sort of, you know, put down his talking points mentally and just defended not just his father, but the whole philosophy of liberalism. And I heard Terry Glavin, the uh, Ottawa citizen columnist, saying that when Trudeau talked about the niqab it came right from his heart from the marrow of his bones i mean that is classic pierre trudeau liberalism it's Mm. it you know it's literally what he learned at his father's knee and that for mulcair whenever he talked about the niqab it always sounded a little more calculated like procedural like yeah yeah, not not there's no heart in it almost yeah all the way along the new democrats and the conservatives kept saying that basically if trudeau didn't fall down if his pants stayed on during those debates it would be a win and instead like at the monk debate when he mopped the floor with them and people went oh okay (laughs) maybe more than just hair i don't know there was a lot of wit and panache to that campaign that last liberal ad that made fun of Justin Trudeau's hair and made fun of other people for making fun of his hair. I showed that ad to my father on my phone. And my father, you know, who still has a Pierre Trudeau, you know, voodoo doll that he sticks pins in at night. Um, And my dad is one of those too. Yeah, you know, my dad laughed and he said, that's a clever ad. And if you can make my dad say anything nice about Justin Trudeau ever, <laughs> that's a bellwether for, you know, for, for sentiment, I think. And I think they were helped, too, by the fact that the campaign was really long, 11 weeks. I think maybe if we had seen an election campaign of a length that we're used to, four weeks, six weeks, they might not have had the ability to sort of break through and actually reach people with that message. You know, people might have just sort of been shrugging them off. But because they had so much time to really drive it home, I think in the end that really ended up paying off. Andrew Coyne made a similar point about the first McLean's debate where Trudeau came out and he was yeah. kind of stuttery and a little nervous in the first five minutes and then he settled down and you were like okay this guy belongs up here and the same dynamic played out where Mulcair what's your number, what's your number? that it was just really annoying me and maybe if you're a younger person you've had that happen to you before where someone just won't listen to you and they're just kind of condescending to you and you just feel like so frustrated by that and Trudeau's handling of that was so good uh, I think a lot of people sympathized with him I think a lot of people saw how, what it looked like when he was being written off like that and Mulcair didn't come off well at all 
This campaign was about as perfect, I think, as you can get a campaign. The ads were perfect. They had, I think, maybe two bad days out of 79. Uh, which was the Gagne thing when uh, he had to resign. And I think the Conservatives, if you're adding up the bad days they had, putting the Duffy trial, the refugee thing that happened, like all that stuff together probably adds up to about a month and a half of bad days. And I think that is the main thing. Trudeau didn't screw up and the campaign was smooth around him too. So I think they did themselves a lot of favors. Yeah, there were, but the, you know, you guys are right. There was such universal condescension. The fact that both Mulcair and Harper kept calling him Justin, 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 yeah. Justin. And it's a bit of the same dynamic we saw uh, with Prentice and I know math is difficult, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, lots of us, whether we're young, which I'm not so much anymore, uh, whether we're female, whether, you know, we've been condescended to by an old white guy in a suit. And there are lots of people in this world who've been condescended to by an old white guy in a suit. And so... This is a great yeah. segue to uh, Ron Liebert. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> uh, one of the other post-election pieces you, you get after a regime change is, is scrutiny of a failed campaign. There's been some doozies <laughs> already. Ron Leipert's gruff complaints about shouting matches with Jenny Byrne. Harper's former campaign manager. Leipert called it the most classless conversation I've ever had in my life. And if you've had a conversation with Ron Leipert, you know that's saying something. <laughs> that's, a, that's a doozy itself. So where, where do you think the biggest biggest fails in terms of campaign can i just quickly address this because that story was a doozy and i I think it's partly because we haven't seen a lot of this in the conservatives we don't hear any of it and so anytime any kind of crack happens people are like whoa what and now there's cracks all over the place well and ron leipert has no stake in this right i mean he was not a member of the harper caucus going in i mean people will remember him as the Pugnacious would be the polite word for it um health minister uh, and various other ministers under ed stelmack Ron Leipert was running to be in cabinet. He was not running to be in opposition. So it doesn't surprise me in the least mm. that if somebody was going to speak out of turn, it would be Ron Leipert. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I really laughed when, when Don Bridge of the Herald ran this piece because people in, in, in central Canada were like, who is this man? I'm like, yeah. I spent years covering this man. And somebody said to me, oh, well, maybe he's, maybe he's like, this is like his, his next step to crossing the floor to the Liberals. No. And if you, if you could, if you could you know no. no no i said to people on twitter no i think this is the kind of thing you see in these campaigns that are centrally run and then you have all these regional candidates and i think if the liberals had lost we'd be hearing from a lot of liberal candidates saying they didn't listen to me at all these great ideas they didn't let me speak to the leader mm-hmm. and that just happens but the the words that Leipert used the classless conversation and the condescension this i think if anyone's ever been young and in charge of an old crotchety guy, you've probably heard this before. And especially Jenny Byrne is a young woman in charge of the campaign. And there was a bunch of people in charge. There was Guy Giorno and there was Ray Novak also with her. And there was a bunch of people all doing these things. It's it's probably a consequence of maybe she is a very condescending person and maybe it is that is the tone of the campaign. But when you're running a large campaign like that, you don't have time to listen to Ron Leipert and what he has to say or, you know, 30 candidates in Alberta and what they have to say. You've got something happening that day. You've got a Syrian refugee crisis you need to handle and you have, you know, Trudeau said this, you have to respond to that. So I I did think, you know, if Jenny Byrne wasn't a young woman, would we hearing this kind of just phrased this way? Well, and actually I read another piece by uh, the Canadian Press's uh, Jennifer Ditchburn and um, 
basically talking about the fact that she was packing up her box uh, up in the campaign war room even before they'd lost the election, you know, sounding like she was getting a really cut loose really quickly. Mm-hmm. The thing is, we don't know a lot about Jenny Byrne because no. she's such a shadowy sort of backroom it's figure. Voldemort. We know nothing about her. There have been, you know, no interviews with her, really. There was a great Globe piece. Paula, I think, suggested it as a good stuff a while back that was really fascinating and shed some light on her but still really didn't quite cut to the heart of who she was because she she never really lets anybody get that close unless you're in that really inner circle. So we don't really know a lot about Jenny Byrne and, 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 and what's gone on throughout all of this campaign, except that there have been sort of whispers about the fact that there have been, uh, you know, people butting heads at the very top of that campaign, including Jenny Byrne and Ray Novak and those kinds of people. When your campaign fails this badly, you need a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. Um Harper, in his whole 10 years in office, was never shy about finding the appropriate scapegoat to throw under the bus. I mean, he was happy to throw Nigel Wright under the bus, and he was a middle-aged white guy in a suit, too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, uh, I think gender and age are part of it, but also, I mean, when your campaign fails this catastrophically, it is much easier to try and blame some backroom person than to say, people didn't like your brand anymore. They didn't like your leader. Mm -hmm. They didn't like your party. If you can blame it all on Jenny Byrne or Ray Novak, then you it's don't great. have then you don't have to say, <laughs> wait a minute, maybe it's our conservative values that mm. Canadians don't share. Have you been reading Andrew Coyne? <laughs> <laughs> I, ha- I have been reading Andrew Coyne, who uh, that was a good column. But on that. but but it is but is that it's absolutely true. I mean, it's it's true with any campaign, right? I mean, if you want to blame the campaign manager, that's very convenient. But at a certain point, you have to blame the leader. And I think I I had a lot more respect for Stephen Harper on election night when he said the fault was his and, and his alone. And at the end of the day, it is. I mean. Let us not forget. It this, was the Harper government. It was the this Harper government. This is what happens government. when you this invest a- so much in, in the leader in that face and you brand everything around that person. When people get tired of that person, they get tired of that person. That CP mm-hmm. piece that you mentioned, it said that Jenny Byrne actually thought from the get-go that they were doomed because of the leader's popularity numbers. And I think maybe there was a lot of conservatives who already thought that. And I think when you go into a campaign thinking that you are doomed well, you, well had, you had a lot of people jump in ship, yeah, too. You know, yeah, Peter mm-hmm. McKay, John Baird, James Moore. I mean, that's a pretty telling sign. After a surprisingly similar, Vic, just a big turnaround for the NDP here in May, there were all kinds of speculations about who would be in cabinet. How are you going to fill this cabinet? Who's going to be up to the task? Stuart, do you think this is the same kind of thing we'll see with the Liberal Party? Uh, no, I think that this is one of the deepest benches for a new government we have ever seen for um, a third party to a first yeah a third party <laughs> yeah yeah um, i mean they they expanded their numbers so significantly but they did it with some really you know people who have a lot of credentials and, and experience across yeah. the country too and well it's funny because this is the first liberal prime minister who wasn't in cabinet previously which shows you i think one side of the story but then the other side of the story is they've got a former leader Stefan Dion, who I think is probably going to be environment minister. If you're looking at a finance minister, Chantelle Burr wrote well on this. It's worth reading if you can find it. If you want to have a cabinet, which the liberals have said will be half women, you have to not do what people have previously done, which is fill all the senior roles with men anyways, and then get all the junior roles filled with women to get your numbers up. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, why not have a female finance minister? And she was suggesting Christia Freeland. Um, because journalists like to suggest journalists for jobs like that. Um, but I, I, even if you're looking at the other jobs, there's finance minister, you could put Ralph Goodell, you could put Scott Bryson, you could put John McCallum, you could put Freeland there. You have a ton of people who would fit that role. And then you have just vast 
uh, ranks uh, for the other jobs. So you have Bill Blair, you have uh, your Alberta guy. We could see Amarjeet Sohi in uh, cabinet. In Alberta, it's all male MPs. Uh, and I wonder if maybe someone like Sohi will miss out. Uh, not that I'm going to shed many tears about that, but uh, it is something that we could see happening. Well, you know, it's, there's diversity and there's diversity. If you look at the four MPs elected yeah. from Alberta, two of them are Sikh. One of them is in a wheelchair and one of them is gay. So that's not the basis on which we elected them. We happen to have elected Amarjeet Sohi and Randy Boissonneau because they were really qualified and they were very, very, very hard to win those seats. You know, I I think the problem for Albertans is that uh, traditionally, Alberta, even if it elected only one MP, it's like the Anne McClellan years, that person got a position of power because the government was keen to get Alberta representation. So I think there's a a strong expectation in Alberta that we'll get at least one cabinet position, if not two. On the other hand, we have four newcomers to federal politics. Would I be unhappy if there were no Albertans in cabinet? I would. And I think Trudeau should put at least one of them in cabinet. But he's got 187 MPs and a lot of debts to pay off all around the country. And I'm worried that if we don't get a cabinet position or if the cabinet position we get is a fairly junior one that people here will whine and stomp their feet. But the reality is I'm not a big fan of quotas for region or gender or other kinds of diversity. I want the best people. I want the MPs from Alberta to do well and to represent us well. And maybe that doesn't mean they go into senior cabinet positions right away. Maybe that means that they're parliamentary secretaries or something for the first, you know, for the first sitting and that they eventually become cabinet ministers when they're good and ready. You know, and we saw this same thing, you know, here in Alberta. Cabinet shouldn't just be about paying your debts and and making people happy. It should be about good governance. Mm. That's actually a good place to jump off to. Uh, we have a cabinet shuffle this week here provincially. and uh, It's not so much a yeah, shuffle as a, a rearrangement, uh, yes. an addition. Yes, some feng, sh- feng shui, as I called it. <laughs> um, uh, Don Braid, our colleague in, in Calgary, at the Calgary Herald, said that you know there's three from Calgary and how many from Edmonton? Uh, and four from Southern Alberta versus now nine for from northern Alberta. Do you think Notley is, you know, being a little risky here by having such a northern emphasis on her cabinet? Not necessarily, but um, I mean, first of all, it's a really small cabinet, so it's going to be hard to have, you know, equal representation. And it's also, it was always going to be hard to have sort of equal regional representation because the original four caucus members who were in opposition were all from Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And uh, people had a lot of criticism for the NDP when they won because um, they said that Rachel Notley had a really shallow pool of talent to choose from. And so, you know, she had to put those four people from Edmonton, including herself, into cabinet. They They were the only four on that team who had any experience really in the legislature. I think for that reason, obviously, there was always going to be a disproportionate amount of Edmonton members of the cabinet. And so, you know, give them a little bit more time. I think we are going to continue to see more people added to cabinet. Notley has said that herself. This was never intended to be a 12 or 13 member cabinet. And I think we probably will, as Don Braid wrote in his uh, column, see it grow to maybe 16 or 17 people over the next year. And then and then we will perhaps begin to see people like Stephanie McLean in Calgary, mm. who everyone has looked to as uh, a potential cabinet contender. I wasn't really surprised to see Danielle Larave added to cabinet because 
it was almost like she was being given a, a bit of a test with with her co-chairing the mental health review with David Swan. To me, it's, it looked like she was sort of being tested to see how she could handle this, how she would engage with Albertans, how she would manage consultations, how she would, you know, handle the schedule of having to travel as cabinet ministers do. It's, it is a really demanding schedule. And so I wasn't really surprised when uh, Notley appointed her to cabinet to take over Darren Billis's previous portfolios of, of municipal affairs and Service Alberta. I think you also have to look at who's doing what jobs. I mean, who has been the most high-profile cabinet minister who's got the most important job, and it's Joe Cece from Calgary, his finance minister, yeah. That's right. uh, who has absolutely <laughs> been Notley's Calgary lieutenant and wingman. And he's been and up front and center a lot of times. Yeah. Well, and know, he's I, under he's under fire because of this budget, right? I mean, everyone has been slamming the government for, on the opposition side and critics outside of the legislature as well, saying, where is the budget we've been waiting for? And he's the guy who's bearing a lot of that uh, criticism. Just five minutes before we had this podcast, there was a news conference. Health Minister Sarah Hoffman announced that uh, there's a new... New Alberta Health Services Board, the, yeah. which has not existed since 2013. The interesting thing is the chair of the board, who is Linda Hughes, former Edmonton Journal publisher. Yeah, so we have a conspiracy theory to de- debunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, this is fascinating for, for a number of reasons. I mean, you'll remember that the last Alberta Health Services Board was fired by Fred Horn because they told him that he they could not do what he told them to do, which was to roll back salaries of people who'd receive bonuses. And mm-hmm. they said to him, but minister, that would be a violation of contract law. We can't do it. So he fired all of them and then found that he, in fact, could not. <laughs> found they were couldn't right. force these people right. to so, not take their bonuses. So since then, we've had no health board. We've had a series of sort of appointed... Uh, Administrators. Yeah, one-person board chairs like Carl Amrine, the former provost of the U of A. So now we finally have board governance back. What that will mean, given the history of the way boards have been uh, run roughshod over by governments in this province, I'm not certain. But Linda Hughes is a really interesting appointment. I mean, yes, she was our former publisher here at the Edmonton Journal. She's my former boss. I have tremendous respect for her as a as a manager and a leader. But uh, since leaving the journal, she went on to be chancellor of the U of A. She's been on a number of other uh, public service and, and private industry boards. She has a lot of respect in Alberta, in the business community, and she's tough as nails. So I think that if you wanted to have an appointment with credibility, somebody that you know isn't just going to be a government patsy, that would be Linda Hughes. And so I am cheered this morning. It's time for good stuff from the gallery. Each week we share something we've enjoyed, often but not always with a political connection. Paula. I'm going to suggest a really interesting piece that Neil McDonald of the CBC wrote. It's kind of a personal essay about Margaret Trudeau. And he reflects back on his time as a young reporter covering Margaret Trudeau in the days when she was like the Princess Di of mm-hmm. Canada, that she was chased by by reporters tabloid style and really mocked and derided before people understood that she was bipolar. He's looking back at his time as a young reporter and reflecting on basically how people bullied her and harassed her and talking about the legacy that she brings to Canada and what her impact was on shaping the character of our upcoming prime minister. A really good piece. Stuart? I uh, will also suggest a good piece in the National Post by Richard Warnica on the Liberal campaign. And if you're feeling ambitious, pair that with Tom Flanagan's uh, piece in The Globe. If you're uh, really ambitious, if you're add really, Paul Wells. Uh, yeah, yeah, add Paul Wells' 20,000 words. Don't do anything <laughs> all weekend and read those things. Uh, but it did sort of tell you that Flanagan makes the point that the conservatives were at 30% at the beginning of the campaign. They didn't really move out of the margin of error of there the whole time. 
they might have just stuck there the whole time. And the Liberals were fighting a campaign to be the pick. And they were fighting the NDP there. So it's a good insight into that. And Warnica, he's a good writer. He writes a good piece. Miriam. Mine this week is a piece that a whole bunch of my friends have been sharing. It's a really fascinating profile of Marie Hanane. She's Gian Gomeshi's lawyer, uh, actually. It's a piece in Toronto Life. It's called The Fixer. It's by Marcy McDonald. Just a really, really fascinating piece. It paints a really interesting picture of this woman who has defended some people who, you know, have, have come to become um, known as very notorious, obviously. My good stuff from the gallery this week is comes from the New York Times magazine, and it's called The Strange Case of Anna Stubblefield. It's about a tenured ethics professor in, in New Jersey who fell in love with a man with severe cerebral palsy who could only communicate through a controversial communication technique called facilitated communication. That doesn't give you a hint of what it, how good it is. This is such a well-crafted story with so many questions and implications. It's been in my mind the whole week. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or on the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show pops up most Friday afternoons and can be retrieved via iTunes, TuneIn Radio, and the Edmonton Journal website. We're all on Twitter. You should also check out the Journal's Facebook page. Thank you, Paula, Miriam, and Stuart for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next time when we'll discuss the provincial budget. Stormy ways, my friends. Stormy ways. That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening.